Welcome everyone to another episode of the In Real Deep Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Semino, and with me as sometimes is a very special guest. He is back to talk crime movies. You heard him on many previous episodes, including the Armageddon episode, the Dune episode, and the start of our little miniseries on crime, in which we revisited the movie Heat. Now he's back to talk about The Dark Knight, and of course, it's Dr. Chris. Hello, Chris. How are you? Hi, Steven. I'll be honest. I lied. I really just want to cut, give more Vincent Hanna takes. Can we just keep giving <laughs> Vincent Hanna takes? I just listened back literally to our heat episode before we started this record, and it was good, and we do drop a lot of Vincent Hanna. Well, we, we were actually very sober and reasonable in that thing. We should have been screaming and yelling a lot more and doing our best Pacino, but in reality, we were being pretty, pretty normal human beings, and that was, I would say, a failure on our part. Yeah, I agree. We can't comment on the excellence of Vincent Hanna in that movie completely sober, so we really failed. I guess we'll just have to talk about Paul Muadib for another hour. <laughs> we'll come back. We're going to get to that in December, I promise. We're going to get you Paul more Paul Muadib. For Fine. Time. But here, we're talking about The Dark Knight, the 2008 superhero film, insanely well-regarded, one of the highest-grossing films of all time. And one that in a lot of the reviews and the commentaries and the thoughts after was compared very often to Heat. I think there's a very clear comparison to make there in terms of several scenes that are homages, including William Fickner in the cold open to this movie. So there, it's I think Christopher Nolan, in a lot of ways, wanted to make a sort of Batman Heat, you know, a superhero Heat in, in many, many different ways. But, you know, Chris, one of the things we did when we watched this movie again recently is we watched it with a, I wouldn't say a critical eye, but I would say we watched it as a crime movie. We watched it as, not as a superhero movie, not as a Batman movie, which I think we all regarded when it came out and said, wow, what a, that's probably the best Batman movie they're ever going to make. But when you and I watched it, we watched it like, okay, does this, is there any, does this movie say anything about crime? Does it say anything about good guys and bad guys? Does it say anything about cops and robbers that we haven't seen before, that we haven't heard before? And I think the answer to that, unfortunately, is a pretty resounding no i think it's uh, very telling that the first actor that you mentioned from the dark knight is william fickner that <laughs> kind of not surprising whatsoever my, my he's he's colonel willie sharp he's a hero he's, he's an american hero and he's the heart and soul of this film let's just lay it out there <laughs> by being the vague mean bank manager yeah who dies. yeah precisely <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. We we watched this together. Uh, I guess I hadn't seen it in, I don't know, five, six years. And I first saw it in 2008, which I, I guess that would have made me 22, 23 years old. And, you know, I loved it when it first came out. In fact, I remember telling you, uh, I first saw it on a Climax movie theater. And uh, I, I distinctly remember, like, I I walked out of it, like, so pumped up. The crowd like stood and cheered multiple times throughout the movie, specifically at the set pieces. And we'll talk a little bit about the set pieces later and why they work so well and, and that being a real strength of the movie. Uh, but I, I also think one of the reasons it got the acclaim it did at the time is because no movie really had tried to take a superhero movie seriously. The previous iteration of Batman, where you had the Michael Keaton uh, to Val Kilmer, uh, you know, to George Clooney, at no point, I think, took itself seriously. And to my knowledge, before the dark, I'm sorry, before Batman Begins kind of started to take itself seriously without attempting to have some big societal message, it just kind of was a darker version of what superhero movies had been. This, at the time, seemed to be the first movie that tried to tell a superhero story and have some semblance of a bigger message, have some semblance of high-minded ideas or philosophy. And, you know, for 22-year-old us and for a large part of the country, we all stood and clapped for that attempt and patted ourselves on the back because now we had a thinking man's superhero movie that we can all be uh, unashamed to say we love. Uh, but... Times have changed. We've been inundated with superhero movies since this movie. And we kind of look at it now and say, well, is it as special as we thought it was when it first came out? And I think it's perfectly fine to, to, to always pat a movie on the back for being a pioneer at something, even if in retrospect, it doesn't hold up as well 12 years later as it did when it first came out. That being said, I think we both found a lot of flaws in this movie that we didn't see the first time around. 
You're so right. It was just so fun to see this the first time. It was the the all the theaters were like that. I think yours sounds particularly cool and unique, but I remember mine was incredibly hyped and had so much fun seeing it. And you know, it just it was deafening the enthusiasm before we even set foot in the theater. And then it really did live up to those expectations. But again, as you sort of noted, those expectations were a Batman movie. We're in a a gritty, real genuine movie that featured Batman. And I think it still is that to a certain extent. And like you said, it also did something that no other movies had done before. So that was really cool. It came out before Iron Man even existed. So like it really did set a tone and, and do a thing that was pretty unprecedented for its time. But it, and, and and when I look back, I feel bad even critiquing it now because I watch it again and I remember the, the, the excitement I felt for it originally. But yeah, it's just nothing it says about any of the characters, any of like who they represent in terms of good guy, bad guy, you know, dark knight, um, you know, uh, lawyer, like none of that has really matters. Like it's, it's window dressing. It's, it's nice window dressing. And I think when you're caught up in the thrill of the Batman movie, which, which Christopher Nolan does really well, like the movie propels forward with such ease and it's a long movie, but most of it is extremely exciting. There's not a ton of dead weight there. Like there is a reason that most of it exists. And I think you, you know, especially for the first two hours, you like are loving the ride the entire time. But I think when the magic has faded a little bit and you're and you're sitting on a couch watching it 20, you know, watching it 12, what is it, 12 years later, it just, it feels like a different movie. And that's, like you said, it, it's important to remember both things. It's important to remember the first time you saw it and it's important to see it now and to say what, what you know, like for all of its joys and they still are ample, what what were we so entranced by 12 years ago? It just feels kind of weird. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's very clear on this watch. Nolan is trying to kind of walk this tightrope of making a superhero movie that has something to say. Um, and it's, you know, he very much takes himself in this movie seriously from start to finish in a way that something like Guardians of the Galaxy clearly does not do. Uh, or even, you know, the Iron Man movies or you know, recently Thor Ragnarok, uh, we enjoyed that movie more than its predecessors because it stopped taking itself seriously. And Nolan does try to do this tight walk or walk this tightrope uh, of creating a quote unquote serious uh, movie filled with commentary and, and head scratching philosophical questions while at the same time trying to maintain uh, the entertainment factor or the wow factor or the, um, please suspend your, you know, your logic for the sake of the superhero movie factor. And I can't say he does a spectacular job of that on a rewatch 12 years later. And I think the, the theme that you and I kept bringing up as we watched it together was he does succeed at proposing lots of questions. And we'll get into what those questions are a little bit later, because some of them are very interesting and, and, you know, there's a reason we enjoyed it at the time. Uh, the problem comes is that after he proposes these questions, he offers either the simplest answer possible, the least um, daring answer possible, or in some cases, just no answer whatsoever. Uh, and when you take away that aspect of it, and it's simply the proposition of questions, uh, Really, the only thing that you and I could agree on that really buoyed this movie the entire time is a out-of-this-world performance by Heath Ledger that still, to this day, holds up as good as any performance could. And then he really did do some, some spectacular set pieces. Uh, and that's something he did well in Batman Begins. It's something he even did well in the worst of the three, uh, Dark Knight Rises. Some of those set pieces were also still spectacular. Uh, and as he showed again when he did Dunkirk, which is mu much more celebrated and a much better film all around, uh, the man absolutely knows how to do excellent, uh, you know, set pieces. So, you know, we'll, we'll get a, a little bit more into the nitty gritty there, but uh, maybe we can start by talking a little bit about the things we didn't really like this time around. Yeah, and I think a good way to get into that is to sort of start with the movie, too. Because, like you said, what it does in the first, you know, I would say 
45 minutes to an hour is pose some of those questions you were talking about. You know, Nolan seems, you know, we open with Joker sort of revealing himself in an amazing cold open sequence where they rob a bank and, and William Fickner is there playing a very Van Zanti from Heat character. Just a little tiny cameo, just a nod to probably because Nolan loves Michael Mann's Heat as we all should. And then we get into the idea of a world where Batman has made an influence. We get into an idea with a world where Batman as a vigilante has changed the game. And what does the world do in response to that? They seem to eventually coalesce around a equal opposite vigilante who is willing to change the game and push the envelope and is emboldened by the idea of Batman. And then the third character that appears during all this beyond Batman Joker is, of course, Harvey Dent, who is the crusading district attorney who wants to fix things and do things by the book and, you know, keeps he makes all these comments about how Batman's this, Batman's that. Like, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a straight-laced guy like that. And it seems to be setting up some sort of a conversation about, okay, like these people operate outside the law and yeah and then there's this person trying to draw it back in but then he eventually gets pulled out and you know what is batman what is batman doing that's good or bad what is above the law is is batman striving to is what batman's doing okay because it serves a noble purpose or is he you know is he a blight on society as well like there's a couple of questions that i think arise in the early stages or at least are poked and prodded at where you go okay like that's kind of neat and maybe that will go somewhere but you know as we progress forward and as we meet these characters more and more and, and some of these light philosophical conversations are entered into it loses steam and no one seems to either lose interest in a lot of them or hop forward to more conventional comic book fare. Yeah, maybe that, that is an interesting way to, to walk through this movie is to go through the questions as he sometimes very obviously raises them. And you bring up the first one, which is the idea of, of a vigilante and vigilanteism. And, you know, I think Nolan very clearly states that broad vigilanteism is not a good thing. Uh, Batman says broad vigilanteism is not a good thing. He's actively trying to end his own career as a vigilante and push it more towards the quote-unquote legitimate uh, actions of Harvey Dent. Uh, Unfortunately, I think the answer he finally gives us on the question of vigilanteism is, well, you can have a vigilante as long as they are completely incorruptible. And they know their boundaries and they know like, okay, I can only go this far and then I must stop. And that, again, that's a superhero element. That's not a, that's not a true human philosophical question because it's, there is no such thing as the incorruptible. That doesn't exist. And I believe Joker even says quite clearly, you are incorruptible, which quite frankly, that is Batman's superpower throughout this whole movie. You know, it's not the money, it's not the equipment, it's not the karate. It's this man is incorruptible. He has a code. He refuses to break the code no matter what the the uh, the consequences are to himself or to society as a whole. Uh, as in when the Joker, I think he said, I killed three or four people and you just let it happen rather than kill me because you didn't want to break your code. And so, again, it's kind of this cheap not particularly interesting answer to an interesting question of if the the systems we've built in society to maintain order break down, is there a role for an undeputized, unelected vigilante to maintain order for the greater good? And the uninteresting answer being, well, sure, there is room for that, but they must be completely incorruptible. And that's just not a, again, now we're talking, now we're in another superhero and it really flies in the face of the last movie we talked about, and again, a movie that I think inspired Nolan in a lot of ways, which is Heat. Because what we loved about Heat so much is Michael Mann presents two main characters who are remarkably flawed and have and are incredibly corruptible in a lot of ways, and but don't know it, you know? In some way, like, Robert De Niro doesn't seem to totally get it. Pacino has his blind spots. Like, both of those characters, Macaulay and Hannah, are, are incre- just very entertainingly flawed people. And the movie is so much richer for it. Like, one of the things we praise it for is that it does show their warts and it shows their problems. And that in a lot of ways guides where the action ends up and 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 that's it, it's awkward to again it's, it's awkward to judge dark knight compared to heat because they're just so not even in the same ballpark in terms of nuance but i think we sort of have to because 
it was one of the big calls after this movie came out was judge this movie to the heats of the world. Give it Academy Award nominations. Treat it as fine cinema. Include it as an AFI top hunt. Like, these are the drum beats you hear after Dark Knight comes out. And I just think it's, you know, if you're comparing Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley to Batman and Joker, like, it's almost embarrassing to compare the two because there's no... And, like, it's okay because Batman and Joker are meant to be, like, archetypal comic book characters. So they're not supposed to have nuance but to to hint at it as we were saying with those characters or to imply that there is some you know what what will they do will that like at the end of it when you get to the end of dark knight batman and joker have changed zero percent from where they were at the beginning of the movie you know like really nothing has changed and that's you know on, on its in its core that's a very bad storytelling technique like that just does not get you very far like and it's just and i get that it's where these movies where comic movies often go it's how comic book stories are often told they reset at the end of an issue and they and it starts back up you know for a new adventure but i just think if you're trying to call this movie a well-done story that holds up there with the best in cinema, it's it's laughable because that's just not how it's supposed to go. That's a that's a really interesting point you bring up that they don't change at all. Even when the love of his life, Rachel, <laughs> dies of horrible fiery death, it takes like seven seconds of like pouting on his chair and then you know a little talk with Alfred and he's like, all right. I'm just going to go back to Batmaning again. Then they just have like a constant adventure with the big building and he's saving yeah. the hostages. Like, yeah, 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 it's just back to business. Just back to being Batman. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's great. But, you know, it's funny. The, um, the first 45 minutes of this film, I actually give him some credit for. It's actually a well-crafted first 45 minutes. There's just enough procedural elements to it. You know, we talked in Heat about how Michael Mann did a great job of having it be just procedural enough to live in the you know hyper real um, you know world that it's set in, and for the first forty five minutes we're talk. What are we talking about? We're talking about Lao and money laundering for the mob. And how do you get to the mob? You get them through their their checkbook, and and Rico statutes and, and prosecuting people through Rico statutes and all that stuff is is a I think a worthy attempt at making this a more serious movie than it ends up being. The problem comes in, and I, don't, I, I shouldn't say the problem because Ledger elevates this movie to whatever praise it deserves. Uh, it comes in when Ledger kind of takes center stage and all this high-minded procedural stuff kind of goes out the window and we get a little bit more ridiculous with how things proceed after that. But even in the first 45 minutes when he seems to try to be doing his best impression of Heat, there are still some kind of stupid parts to it that that we did take note of. The accents in the beginning are kind of stupid. They're this, you know, old Chicago gangster accent uh, as they're doing that very well shot opening scene. As much as you love Fickner, and I know you might end this podcast as I throw some hate Fickner's way, that little monologue he has about how criminals used to have codes and have respect and what do you believe in? is the stupidest, most on-the-nose soliloquy. But he's playing it like he's playing it like it's ridiculous, though. Like he's 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 hamming it up pretty hard. Sure. So, but but again, but those things are in are in contrast too. It's like so this is a sober, serious sort of bank robbery with a Joker. But then William Fickner is hamming it up like he's you know right. doing community theater. Like it doesn't necessarily jive perfectly together. Exactly. And you know, again, it's it is a superhero movie, and if we're if we're rating it on the scale of a superhero movie, that kind of campy dialogue is perfectly permissible. It's okay. We can we can allow that to happen. But as you mentioned, if you are trying to make this a, a an AFI top 100 movie or you want it to be taken as seriously as that, we can't exactly let those things slide. And unfortunately, even though there is an attempt to make this procedural, there is little to no commentary on the criminal justice system by and large, <laughs> even though they kind of take these cheap swings at it, they never really set their feet in the ground and give a take on on a com any sort of commentary on criminal justice. So, again, the first forty five minutes, well done, looks good, acted well enough, smart enough. But then after that first forty five minutes, after I, I would say the uh, the fundraiser that he throws Harvey and that whole scene, which is also great it kind of goes down the path of the ridiculous and the messages. So as we would call them become a little more in your face, a little less nuanced, 
and it, it falls apart as the quote, you know, it falls apart as a take me seriously movie from there. Yes, because that is a point where they could keep asking those sort of questions. Because at that point, you know, from from there, the movie becomes a lot about Harvey Dent and Jim Gordon and how they are going to combat the Joker through Gotham's actual systems and processes, you know? And there is something to, there is probably something to be said there. And I guess the movie sort of says this, but I just don't think it matters or is executed ultimately very well that Joker cannot be defeated by the systems, you know, which is, which I guess is true. Like you do sort of need Batman at the end of the day, but it doesn't come off as a commentary on the, the criminal justice system that it's all like, be it the district attorney, be it the police commissioner. Like they are just sort of there, you know, like they are there as Harvey Dent and Jim Gordon, the characters, not as district attorney and police commissioner. They're just guys. And, and the shit they try and do to catch Joker and to, and to move the plot forward is becomes incredibly convoluted from like a plot perspective. And also from a, what the, what is the point of all this perspective? You know, like it becomes, there's a lot of ins and outs. Everyone's trying to trick everybody. trying to keep things close to the chest as they say in this movie a lot which is not true it's close to the vest but they keep saying chest which is very weird so there's just like a lot of but beyond that it just doesn't it just nothing really matters you know like i would have loved to see some commentary on the limits of like the limits of uh, harvey dent as district attorney like what can and can he do what are you know like, like they at the end. This is skipping ahead a little bit, but the end, the argument is sort of that Dent was corrupted by Joker, and so now he is null and void, which is not what happens at all. <laughs> he gets he gets blown up, and his fiance gets killed. Like he doesn't get corrupted. His life is ruined in, in like an act of violence. Like how is that being corrupted? Like it's nothing. Like there's just no. There's nothing to say there about it. Like it's a much more interesting movie, I think, if you talk about. Harvey Dent's this white knight kind of guy is just insanely limited by what he can and can't do when operating against someone who is fully outside the law. I think that's an interesting sort of narrative. Like, well, like maybe we do need, maybe not even that we need or need, don't need Batman, but there's just no room for in like, like it, it would sort of bridge the real world and the fantasy world. You know, like the district attorney is a real thing that exists in the real world. Joker is a comic book thing. So the real world runs up into a wall when it tries to tackle the, sort of abnormal ridiculousness of the comic movie like i think there's a commentary there that christopher nolan could have done to try and play those two off each other but instead he just kind of matches the pieces all together like he gets the action figures and he pushes them and makes them fight and they run into each other real fast and then like eventually joker wins and harvey Dent flies away like it just there's just nothing it just like you said it, it sort of just dips back into well i guess we're just gonna make a convoluted plot that to nolan's credit doesn't seem that bad the way he tells it, but just doesn't have any substance to it. It doesn't have any weight to it. It's just a series of events that just occur and occur and occur in order. Yeah, I think I, I wrote down on my, my hot notes here, Joker too good at stuff. <laughs> like <laughs> That's the kind of biting commentary you get. Those are the hot takes you come to In Real Deep for. Uh, but yeah, I mean, expounding on that already eloquently put take, uh, <laughs> It, it does. It does get a bit of. And be, actually, before we get into more of this criticism, I think it bears repeating. We both still absolutely loved Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker. Loved it. I'll always love it. It was spectacular. He is one of the two parts of this movie that really, really work well. And what we're about to say about the rest of the movie takes nothing away from how spectacular he was as that that particular character. But he was too good at stuff. His plans were too perfect. They were too perfectly timed. Somehow he knew that, you know, Bruce Wayne slash Batman would reconstruct this bullet and lift a print off of it and then be in the right apartment at the right time and ride his Ducati motorcycle at just the right hour. So that, uh, you know, the thing goes up and the snipers see the thing. And there's just too much of it that is kind of like, okay, if you wanted me to suspend my disbelief, and make this purely a comic book movie. You didn't set that tone in the first half of the film. And so that part, I think that general theme that starts about an hour, 45 minutes in and carries to the very last scene of the movie did kind of bother both of us watching it as a film. But I think now is also, I guess a good time we can expound a little bit about the ideas or the, the questions that Nolan's trying to bring forth with the character of the Joker, which are interesting. 
And again, I don't have an issue with the questions raised. I have an issue with how they're answered or not answered by the director. Um, so one of the questions I think that the, jo the character of the Joker presents to us as an audience is this concept of what exactly is a crime? What constitutes a crime? Why do we have a criminal justice system at all? Especially one that has such power and we give so much resource to. And then the next logical question after you ask that is, well, why do we even have societies at all which create and enable criminal justice systems in the first place? And that is a fascinating question and one that I think is deserving of exploration. I mean, I guess I would argue that the purest, most uncorrupted answer would be that societies exist to prevent us from indulging in our worst instincts, which would be namely the use of violence and the acquisition of resources, personal safety, or getting mates, uh, which are the, the biggest drivers from our brainstem and have the potential to drive us to commit you know, unspeakable acts to one another in our quest to satiate those needs. So society is in essence, the idea of, hey, what if we can come up with a system which allows people to acquire resources, attain personal safety and acquire mates without having to kill one another? That's the basic tenet. And subsequently, because we, we create that system that allows us to satiate those base needs, we are in theory allowed to live a less stressful minute to minute existence in which like the state of our biochemistry is more satisfying. <laughs> you know, we already know that constant stress for various reasons is detrimental to the human mind and body. And so it follows that our species would over thousands of years of evolution arrive at complex systems of existence which minimize that detrimental stress. And so getting back to the original idea, kill one another less. Now the cost of that society is obviously a certain loss of personal freedom, a certain amount of individual contribution, material or otherwise, to the whole. And so with that as a, an idea, Creating codes of justice and then enforcing that justice exists simply to maintain the ability for a society to allow its participants to acquire resources, attain personal safety, and find mates in the least violent way possible. Now, the problem that I think we can all see staring us in the face, especially with recent you know, happenings in our society, is what if these simple and seemingly logical reasons for establishing a society become corrupted? What if this inevitable individual quest for power leads us to go against the basic idea or purpose of a society? Name, like, namely, what if a, number, a certain number of people that acquire power bend and mold a society for the immense gain of some at the immense, immense expense of others? And what if uh, those who have acquired that power imbue the systems of society with some sort of morality or some other made-up story that distract everyone else from the gains they've had? Or worse, what if the majority of everybody else simply watches in apathy to maintain whatever comfort they've acquired as they watch a certain group uh, take an immense amount of power from another group? And so with that as kind of a long-winded context, one can imagine which group the Joker probably belonged to. And they do a good job of giving us very little of his, his backstory. And he himself is a very unreliable narrator, as you see in the, the various versions of the story he tells. But one can assume that he is of the group of people in the society that was left behind or was robbed from in different ways to maintain a status quo, which never worked for him, which was never justified. for him. And so he spends a lot of time in this movie and a lot of quotes and a lot of on the nose quotes telling us how farcical these stories we've all been told about justice, about the rules of society, the, the morality of society and those who lead us, the police, our mayors, whatever. They've all been wrapped in this kind of unearned morality. And even though we all kind of know there's a certain amount of corruption within them, we still buy and we repeat and we empower those. Uh, we, we buy and repeat the stories that were told, uh, the, the cheap lines, you know, whether it's a, you know, a support the troops kind of thing for somebody that's never served in the military and votes people in office that continue to send people to war. Uh, or in this case, you know, this uh, in the in the movie, this 
what I believe Joker would say is this honor and trust of uh, government and, and police. He is pointing out at various times in this movie, it's all a joke. These are all made up. We've simply chosen to ignore the hypocrisy within them. And he as a character is a he's the sin eater that is going is willing to, to be on the crucifix, as it were, being told he's the freak. He's the one who's wrong. He's the one who's evil, despite the fact that the very systems which indict him are themselves corrupt and evil. That's a great question to ask. Unfortunately, I just don't think by the end of the movie we get a satisfying answer. Yes, we don't. And uh, that's the that's the running. We're going to bring that up a hundred times through this episode. But the one Joker line that I do think is kind of good, and I wish, and I think does sum up what Nolan is trying to do, but in like an unearned way where, again, it's very on the nose and it's, I think it's, it, it, it holds true as accurate and I think is relatively insightful, but it just doesn't go very far from there is when he says, you know, nobody panics when things go according to plan, even if the plan is horrifying, you know, uh, if, if a gangbanger gets shot or a truckload of soldiers are blown up, nobody panics because it's all part of the plan. I think that's actually pretty good. Like he is this, he says this movie, he's this agent of chaos. He's just showing people how ridiculous this all is that when stuff you you don't expect to happen happens everyone loses their minds and i think that is a very you know i, th I think if, if played out in some way that is very interesting like you know and not in like a twisted jared leto lame like joke like if there's there's an actual real life again that's i think the comic book butts into the real life there's a real life version of joker that is pretty scary and the comics themselves have done i think a better version of this in some ways where he does make choices that are a little more personal and not that rachel rachel i mean you could disagree with me here but i think rachel blowing up is very plot centric you know like i don't feel like when she dies you're like oh no my favorite character rachel is dead you're like this this is just a female character being used in a michael mann kind of way to further the story of the movie you know like i don't think anyone in the theater was weeping when rachel blows up because she's just not that personal like she doesn't matter much as the character does they haven't spent a lot of time making her really really matter but i think there's a version of joker that does really you know buck the plans of society and of the systems in a way that truly feels interesting and terrifying. I think the way Nolan does it and the way he, I don't want to say he panics or he pulls back or whatever it is. I think it is. I, I, don't, I, I don't think Nolan was trying to make a like grandiose statement on anything. I think he was trying to make a pretty good Batman movie. And I think uh, uh, a lot of what we think about this movie is just, it came out and was very good. And there became a whole cultural conversation about what it is. But I think with what he does with his Joker is, it becomes very theatrical. It becomes sort of silly. And again, I think it becomes a lot about the plot. Like he, the, the big decisions he makes and the, the stuff he does that is bad, he blows up a hospital. To me, it doesn't feel like the true kind of terror. Like what if a literal crazy person tried to blow up a literal hospital? It's like what if a comic book character did a comic book type thing, you know? Like, what if this fictional character threatened this other fictional character in a very fictional way and then, like, it just, it, 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 by that point, the movie, I feel like, has a, has left behind its approach, his, its, its real approach, its grounded approach in trying to center this in a world very much like our own and has sort of retreated, for lack of a better term, into being a, a movie, into being a fictional narrative, into not really shining a light on anything, and instead using these characters, these archetypes in a lot of ways, to just move things forward. And I think, but I think what you're saying is very accurate, that there is, that I think what he started out this Joker being, and what this Joker could have been, and sort of the steps he takes uh, in the early to middle stages of the movie, do imply a a really interesting scenario of just a true insane person who bucks the trends and what it means to society to see those to lose that comfort to see those trends bucks and how quickly the world probably would unravel and as you sort of said as we've seen it unravel when that does happen but yeah i just think that that you know for whatever reason maybe just because again I, he was making a comic book movie and he was okay with that he just there's not more it's mostly lip service or at least it's like you said it's the first five words of a 12 word question that he never really gets fully out of his mouth. Yeah. I think the more on the nose quote he, and that quote you mentioned is, is great. I think the other on the nose quote he gives is their morals, their code. It's a bad joke dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. You'll see, I'll show you when the chips are down, these civilized people, 
they'll eat each other. I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. And I think what he's getting at in that quote and kind of just his general state of being uh, is the fragility of society, the fragility of what has been built under this facade of strength and morality and, and uh, justice and fairness for all, that in, at, at its core, in reality, it's all fragile and it all could collapse with the slightest blow of the wind. Uh, because it's built on a, a cracked and faulty foundation. And because we've decided to imbue, we've decided that the foundations are in some arbitrary morality that he is shining a light on and saying uh, that, that it is corrupt, that this morality is, is fake, it is a facade. In his view, um, the slightest bit of chaos collapses that foundation and society itself collapses. And there is a certain amount of truth to that. Uh, and a movie exploring the depths of that truth would be fascinating. And I, I, don't, I don't expect Christopher Nolan to fully address that very large topic uh, in a two and a half hour Batman movie. But it also, it, it also you know, it, I, I think the word chaos is what they marketed the Joker as. I, I still remember like the, the billboards and the, the commercials. It was all about, he's this agent of chaos. And it's an interesting contrast between him and the other quote unquote, you know, criminals in the movie, you know, the Maronis, the, what we called the poor man storm hair, that just random Russian guy. <laughs> what you call the poor man storm hair. Yeah, yeah, the poor man's people. I want you to take full credit for that. Um, gamble, et cetera. Those are criminals that we're all kind of comfortable with, right? They exist within the confines of society. They eat around the edges. They, they profit off of the vice of those within society. Because what, you know, what are the classic, you know, the godfather ways that organized crime made money? It was running numbers, gambling, prostitution. These things that in and of themselves are not particularly evil. Uh, they were just vices that, quote unquote, fancy and good or proper or moral society indulged in periodically. And these these types of criminals would profit off of that. So their profit and their power is based within still the confines of this society. And if the society didn't exist, these men wouldn't be rich and have power. And this is why the Joker also despises these men the same, with the same vigor he despises the mayor, the police chief, Commissioner Gordon. They're all part of the same hypocrisy. And you know, that plays out uh, throughout his interactions with these these uh, criminals where they're all driven by money and personal, ac you know, personal acquisition of power, which he finds laughable. He doesn't find it noble. And there's no code to it. Uh, if there's anything about Joker that is admirable is that he, he himself admires a code, which is why he admires Batman so much. But he sets this mountain of, of money on fire to let them know this isn't the point. Money is not the point. Picking up the scrap, you know, the crumbs of society, the uh, leaves and their vice to acquire money. That's not the point of this. The point of this is the destruction of a hypocritical or, or broken society that I seem to be the only one that can point this out. So I'm going to demonstrate to everybody my truth that I know is actually happening. Um, and so that's, you know, that part of the Joker is probably the most interesting part. And I will say Nolan does a decent job of, by the end of that movie, you're like, okay, yeah, that's who that dude is. There's no ambiguity about that. Now, where... <laughs> the issue the issue is the response from Gotham and Batman right. and from Christopher Nolan is the to that sort of character, obviously, because what where that all leads to, everything we talked about, where it ultimately goes to, like, really the emotional... Uh, not climaxingly, but really when the themes are hammered home in a very distinct way, is the fairy scenes. When, you know, which at that point, you can feel the movie. I mean, my, I've always been of the opinion this movie is, this movie is 152 minutes long. And I've always been of the opinion that the last 45 minutes are 
pretty too very bad. I think this is a two-hour max movie, and I think there that, there's it's I wouldn't even like I, I don't think it's, I wouldn't even call it fat on the on there because I think no one wants it to be there very distinctly. I just don't think it adds it. I think it just starts slowing down. and It doesn't add a thing to the movie. But he obviously wants it to be there, and he wants to hammer home this point, which is that people are inherently good, or that society is good, or systems are if not good, then like you said, built for a reason and exist for a reason and are not cracked and broken in the way that Joker says they are. And the way he does that is by having regular people, regular people in quotes, and criminals on two ferries, and you think the criminals are going to blow up the regular people, but instead the cri- Zeus from WWE fame, <laughs> <laughs> a Tiny Lister, is big and black, but he's also nice, and he doesn't want to kill a, a thousand people yeah. for no reason. What a twist. What a great man. Nolan. Like, well... Yeah, what it whoa, that human beings must be great if Tiny Lister doesn't want to blow up strangers for no reason. Just cause he's a prisoner? Like, it just it's such a weird, like uh I wanna call it like a TV movie, like, you know, it's uh lifetime movie lame ass message because it's just so rudimentary and it's so lax in any sort of subtlety or anything. It's just like it's just it's 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 the death there should be a giant nose on the screen the entire time because it's so fucking on the nose. And from that point forward, the movie just I mean the movie is just bad from that point forward again in my opinion, but if if you're gonna count that as like a repudiation of everything the Joker is saying, it's just such a lame way to do that. Like if you're gonna show the inherent goodness of people countering Joker's assertion that we all stink or are part of a stinky system, it's just an embarrassing way to do that. And it every time I see it I hate it more and more. Well and he even Batman if I remember right, even says very bluntly as it's happening, what, you just wanted to prove that everyone's just as ugly as you inside? <laughs> he should say that in a Trey Parker voice. That would be the best way to do it. God, that, uh, that spectacular nuanced dialogue really helped me understand uh, what the point of this he says is. It. I believe Batman says it with like a pipe over his neck too, so he's like, you just wanted yeah, to exactly. see yeah, that yeah. you're like bail no no one no bail no why are we doing this please well, and all no. of a sudden like all the karate he learned from the league of shadows is like now moot because he's got this thing across his clavicle like what well, he, he doesn't know karate <laughs> i don't get it but it, this also leads so that 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 scene sucks we both think it sucks and then it also had that stupid like uh sonar component to it which i have to believe was some kind of uh product placement because it just doesn't make any sense or it's a comment on on privacy you know the bush era privacy again unspeakably on the nose and and implies that this only is okay because batman is is inherently good and so in the hands of someone else but thank god we have batman it's like well we don't have batman in the real world so what does this even well in case you weren't sure lucius fox does say the words this is wrong (laughs) (laughs) but leading from that (laughs) leading from that shitty scene to an even shittier scene at the end with the whole harvey dent thing um that was completely extraneous, not necessary, stupid, poorly written, uh, bad dialogue. And then this this question that he's asking at the end, which is, is society worth telling the lie to? Should we continue the lie, prove the Joker's point, cover up what, um, what Dent did, have Batman be the sin eater for all of society, and then that's worth it. That's more important. That's that's where we need to get back to. And I kind of, A, reject the premise of that question, but B, it's clear, and this is where I think we were most, most dissatisfied with Nolan. He takes you on this two-and-a-half-hour journey asking these questions, and then at the very end, the answer is, we're just going to go back to how it was before. We're going to keep telling the lie. We're going to keep the corruption of the system up. We're going to keep feeding people this... Uh, this facade of morality, of truth, of righteousness embodied in the very white, blonde face of uh, Harvey Dent. And it's played as the greatest victory. It's like, what a, the music swells and you're like, this is what we must do for society. But the Batman Band-Aid is the only best possible answer. We did it, guys. We fucking figured it out. We answered these, you know, half dozen, half-baked questions in the movie by simply saying, yes, this is all worth it. Keep it going, baby. Nothing wrong. No need to change. And... (laughs) 
you know, it's it's kind of, it's kind of an annoying way to end it uh, after like getting your hopes up that this may have a commentary beyond that, but it, it clearly does not. And this leads into, and we don't have to talk about the Dark Knight Rises here, but like there is clearly some, I think, antipathy from Christopher Nolan to the rabble, to the hoi polloi, to the plebs, you know, the the proletariat. He doesn't trust them. It's clear he doesn't trust them. He's an institutionalist. He believes we have to lie to people to, to keep good faith and order. And okay, well, I guess that's the moral of this story. And I guess he, I guess the optimistic viewpoint is that he's into incremental progress, I would say. You know, like that's probably the, the pleasant reading of this is that things were getting better in Gotham, you know, with Batman and with the plan and with Harvey Dent types and people who will fight for it. So, you know, if you can, you know, if you can distract people and you can give things time and you can just chill, there will be bit by bit by bit process. And whereas opposed if you tell everyone Harvey Dent was bad, though again, he was not bad, but if, in the world of this movie, if you admit to everyone that Harvey Dent was bad, it all comes crumbling down. And But but like you said, but the, the other reading of that is then you are paused to reassess the world in which you live and the way it functions and why it functions this way and why we've allowed these things to perpetuate for so long. That seems to be, if not an abhorrent concept of Christopher Nolan, something he'd really rather we don't do and something he probably deems unnecessary. And, and like you said, uh, uh, anathema to the point because he thinks the, the people in charge will know better and will, their inherent goodness will help them all chart a path for all of us to, you know, to glory and joy and utopia or at least something close enough to it that we should just chill and wait for it to happen. And it's just, it's weird to present that the way he presents that sort of loose theme in conjunction with, you know, the Batman sacrifice and we said the swelling music and the stupid Jim Gordon voiceover. I just, it just, it feels so clunky and wrong. And when you think about it for more than 30 seconds, it falls apart immediately and you go, wait, that's the end of this movie. <laughs> like that's the message. I think the word that's coming to mind right now is like, it's kind of, this idea that, Nolan is trying to give what appears at its face value to be this thinking man's take on society that, well, nothing is perfect and there's dark sides to society. So we need some dark sides to our solutions and they can't be perfect in and of themselves. It's kind of this lazy take on it, which is, well, if we can't fix all of it, the status quo is our best chance. And that's like the laziest, dumbest, like most reductive and unhelpful uh, solution. Especially in the Batman universe where the status quo is terrible. Yeah. There's bad guys and monsters everywhere. <laughs> How is that good? Well, and the only solution that they've come up with in the first two movies is like, well, we got this dude. He's got some sweet armor. He's got some guns, but he doesn't kill anybody. But he's going to beat up the crime until there's no more crime. Like, that's essentially the improvement that we've seen. And then this attempt to show some, like, legitimate quote-unquote societal societally driven change with this new district attorney and the attempt to use the criminal justice system to bring people to justice it's kind of this idea that well nope that's just going to be corrupted and it can never work and so um i guess we'll just have to keep telling the lie and if that's the final message of this entire movie okay sounds good i just think it's a bit lazy and reductive to do that it's weird because he's saying it like he I feel like he's sort of saying it can work. It just has to work in a certain context in a certain situation. And like you said, and it's better than the alternative. Like, you know, like Batman's there to grease the wheels in the Nolan world. You know, Batman's there to to these extraneous threats that operate outside of society. He's sort of there to punch them, like you said, a bunch until they go away. And then so that the Harvey Dents can sort of do their thing. And but they're and they're not the solution about like there's I just don't know what we're meant to think when it's all said and done. Like, are we are we meant to be optimistic? Are we meant to be pessimistic? Are we meant to to believe in Batman? Is he is he actually is his vigilante as good or bad? Is it like I don't think there's and like I don't think any of that is remotely answered. And I think it's but I think he dresses it up like it is a definitive statement, which I think is the part that we found the least satisfying. Is I think the whole it's supposed to be this grandiose stamp on the end of the movie, and I think you and I looked at each other and said. Wait, what? What does that mean? <laughs> what does yeah, exactly. that mean? What just happened? Why? And it's just, and there's nothing there. It's very hollow, and it's it's that's not the way it is portrayed in a lot of other 
reviews and commentaries and thoughts about it. They'll they'll only have you think there's 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 something there, and I really don't think there is. We skipped one scene that we both pointed out as important in the movie for both good and really bad reasons, and it was the press conference where Harvey Dent uh, shows up. Things are worse than ever. That's the bad part. Yeah, the, that's <laughs> no more dead cops. <laughs> Uh, but the, the question he proposes in that scene is the idea that Harvey Dent is kind of making the viewers, uh, you know, society, as it were, uh, the, the citizens of Gotham look themselves in the mirror and say, OK, we say that we believe these things. And one of them being not negotiating with terrorists or whatever. And we wrap ourselves in the, the cloth of morality of these these kind of empty statements we always say Um to convince ourselves of something of a reality that's not really there. And now he's coming and challenging them. And he's saying, now is your chance to live up to these statements we all make. And what he's basically telling them is that, yeah, the Joker's killing people, but to believe these high-minded things we portend to believe, there is a blood price to pay. And this is actually probably the most, I think, accurate and, and the, the message that, that Nolan gets across that I agree with most is that our society as a whole likes to say these things. And we have proven time and time again, we are often not willing to pay the blood price or we lack the courage of our convictions. And I think that's what he's playing out in this scene with Harvey Dent basically telling him the, the Batman should not answer to the Joker. We should not answer the Joker. We should not cave to this terrorist whims. Uh, the, the Batman must be accountable to us as a society. And the crowd makes it very clear that, nope, we are not willing to pay the blood price for this conviction. We do not have the courage of that conviction. And so that, I think, was probably the best executed message that he gave uh, in this story. But that ultimately goes really nowhere either. Because then, because like that, you know, there is that moment. And I think this is an issue with Dark Knight Rises, which again, we're not going to talk about and we're not going to watch and no one should see <laughs> We're Dark not going to talk about how much it fucking sucks. <laughs> it's very bad. But there's, you know, it's, there's that, like you said, there's a few minutes there where Aaron Eckhart as Harvey Dent seems to be saying something of relevance with actual commentary on the world. And then it's all overshadowed because he goes on to Batman. And the only thing you remember from that scene is, oh man, Harvey Dent just said he's Batman, you know? <laughs> like, whoa! Because it's all in service of the comic book story. It's all in service of moving these chess pieces where they need to be for maximum enjoyment and for comic book pleasure. And so I just don't, I, and I, again, I, I really do, I feel bad saying all this because I don't know what his ultimate goal was, if he had much to say, or if he wanted to just imbue a little bit of stuff there. But I just have, when we watch it again, all, I, every, almost every scene we've described, even the ones that are kind of good, there's always something you look at and say, this is half-baked, this is lazy, this is this doesn't hold up. Like, there's just, there's a hole you can poke in everything. And it just really makes the if you watch it with that sort of an eye, it just makes it a, a mediocre to probably pretty good movie for the reasons you described, but not because of anything it has to say about anything at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want to point out just a couple of bullet points of other things we found really dumb in this. The first one is actually kind of serious. <laughs> I really didn't like Nolan's depiction of schizophrenic people in this movie. And I don't say that glibly. I really do think it's kind of a harmful uh, depiction where the Joker, you know, preys upon people with mental illness and they all of a sudden become these murdering machines for him, susceptible to his every whim I think that's a really dangerous stereotype to play with. And I'm kind of, uh, I'm a little, I'm a little curious if that gets more attention as, as time goes on and we'll see. I don't know. Uh, the other thing that we both kind of laughed and were angry about it in the middle of a spectacular set piece where they're transporting, um, you know, we're transporting Harvey Dent, uh, who is ostensibly Batman at that time. That's an incredibly well done, awesome set piece. And this idiot who I don't even know his name is like the, you know, audience surrogate talking about air cab. <laughs> Hope you got moves, pal. Like, uh, that's just the worst part of this entire movie. It's so stupid. The Jim Gordon getting captured and faking his own death thing was also just absurd and stupid. Uh, the only time the faking your own death storyline has worked is in season three of Eastbound and Down when Kenny Powers fakes his own death unnecessarily at the end of the season. 
Yeah, I think those are kind of the three big things I I, I wanted to mention that sucked. <laughs> You know, we, we didn't talk a lot about this, and I think because we had bigger, crimey things to discuss. But like you said, the, like, the things that hold up when you watch again, the set pieces are amazing. Specifically, the effects, Nolan's reliance on, you know, there's definitely some CGI there, but there's also a lot of real stuff. And it's been proven for, over the last 30 years that the movies that have a mix of both, at the very least, look so much better and much better. Jurassic Park still looks good, and that movie is incredibly old. But because it's a mix of everything, it's you can still it doesn't just look like bad CGI. And I think the truck flipping over in particular is the scene everybody thinks about that's a legitimate truck we've been on that street in chicago together they've literally flipped a truck in the air you know it's so cool and if anything you know we are critiquing nolan's storytelling to a certain extent and certainly his commentaries on the world and society but the man directs a hell of an action movie and a hell of a you know big budget blockbuster like he's i would say he's without a doubt the best blockbuster director there is of this generation he's unbelievably good at that kind of stuff he does big bombastic loud wild as good as anybody and the stuff in this movie you know beyond that annoying asshole who rambles that whole scene but everything about the movie that is action and excitement and all that is is not perfect but pretty pretty darn close to it oh it's i think it's a plus and like we've been spending the last 45 minutes shitting on christopher nolan uh but he's still one of the i don't know five directors that i don't care what the movie is i don't need to see the preview if you tell me there's a christopher nolan movie in theaters i'm gonna go see it no second thoughts don't need to see the the trailer i'm there so I, I do love watching Christopher Nolan films, even if I have a lot of issues with this particular film. And I think we're, I think we're, we're kind of being hard on this film because of how much we loved it when it first came out. And we're almost making a commentary on ourselves 12 years ago as to why, <laughs> why were both of us so stupid and asking for so little out of our films. So this is a bit of self-flagellation uh, on ourselves as well as we, we shit on the movie. But one thing that you mentioned that I do want to bring up as we were watching it is Nolan doesn't use Batman himself or Christian Bale or, or the character of Bruce Wayne as an evolved figure in this movie at all. He's kind of just this thing that reacts to things throughout the movie. You know, Batman Begins, there's an evolution of Bruce Wayne to Batman. And you can chart from start to finish the, the delta between beginning of the you know little boy watching his parents get killed to the man who lets Raz al Ghul die at the end. There is no such change or delta in this film. And I do think there is something critical to be said about the fact that the, main, the guy who's ostensibly the main character of your film undergoes zero evolution from start to finish of the film. Zero evolution and really just zero, like you said, just reacts and responds to everything around him, which is which is interesting and a and a you know unique choice and I think something that makes the movie stand out. And I think part of the reason people like Ledger so much that he's just because he is the catalyst for everything and he's so good at it too, both as a character and as Heath Ledger as an actor. But it's yeah, it's it's wild how little Bale has to do in this movie, and like you said, it's wild uh, how much how little happens, how much happens to him, and how little it seems to make an impact on him is all very interesting. And I would say a flaw. It's a it's a planned flaw. I don't think it escapes Christopher Nolan's uh, notion that this was happening in the movie he was making. But yeah, I just don't know what the point is, especially if you subscribe to the theory that he did not want to make Dark Knight Rises. He did that of an obligation because they backed a big truck of money up to his house. He half-assed that movie in terms of story even more than he did this one. Now that this is half-assed, I'd say he used 90% of his ass on this one, but he certainly half-assed Dark Knight Rises, and that is, and he didn't have, I think everyone who saw this movie also thought like, man, this is the, this is building somewhere. It, it ended a little abruptly, a little weirdly, but I'm sure it's going somewhere in the third one. I'm sure Nolan has a plan. And then we saw the third one and said, oh, there's no plan at all. It was just to do a Bane movie, to sort of reference Occupy Wall Street, to sort of reference, in, you know, unequal wealth distribution, and then really just have Batman drop a bomb in the ocean and run away. And so, the, the police are all heroes. Yeah. And the police are all heroes, yeah. yes, which we're not going to get into. <laughs> but that is certainly a, a, a very – that is not a huge thing here. That is a huge thing in the yeah. third one. Well, the, uh, the funny thing is this whole movie could have been summed up if at the end, you know, you have Two-Face dying in the fall and Jim Gordon and Batman are standing there. They basically could have summed it up, you know, Jim Gordon be like – so, Batman, two and a half hours into this film, what have you learned? What are you going to do different? And Batman just being like, you know what? I'm going to still be Batman, but everyone's going to be mad at me for it. 
And then just says the dark. Then it's just dark (laughs) night. Yeah, like that is that is the that that is the message. Is the evolution is everyone's just gonna be mad at me for being Batman now, but it's cool. I'm gonna keep being Batman. I would have taken that. It would have been much less grandiose and much less contrived, and it would have like okay, the movie's telling me the truth at least. That's good. Like it's not acting like this is profound or interesting. Yeah, exactly. Well, that about does it for our Dark Knight conversation. I think the point we made here that I think we really want to hammer home is if you saw this movie and you liked it, that's great. We're not saying it's a bad movie, but go watch it again. I believe it's on Hulu. Go give it a shot, and I'd be very curious to see if you like it as much as you did. And I gave it, I still think it's a three star at worst movie, and there's certain scenarios where I'd say it's even better than that. But yeah, I think if you, if you look back on it and say, man, this should have won Best Picture, or man, this was like a truly remarkable cinematic achievement. Like, well, kind of, but not really. So <laughs> give it a shot. I think you'd be very intrigued to give it a rewatch as we were. And if you want to hear more of our thoughts on crime movies, go to inrealdeep.com or subscribe to the Inreal Deep podcast. We already did an episode on Heat, which is out. You can find it on the website or in our archives. And we got more to come. We're going to talk about Seven, and we're going to talk about No Country for Old Men in the very near future. So keep an eye on the feed. Come back for those, and we will be talking crime movies of the modern era more and more. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Great to talk to you. Great to talk about Batman. Love your monologues. Love your soliloquies. It's it's beautiful stuff, and and we love hearing you uh, hearing you talk through our ear holes. Thanks, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm blushing on the other side of this. <laughs> I can see it. You look very nice. Your pale skin is radiating red. Yes. So. <laughs> and thank you all so much for listening. We'll be seeing you further on up the road. Adios. Mm-hmm.